for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Daryl Vickers. Daryl formed a comedy writing partnership with Andrew Nichols when they met in junior high school in 1969, and this took them from Oshawa to Hollywood. As a writing team, Vickers and Nichols have over 1,200 hours of produced television credits, working primarily with three geniuses, Johnny Carson, Mickey Rooney, and George Carlin. As Daryl summed it up for me in an email, In 1984, I went down to the U.S. on a 10-week trial to work on Alan Thicke's talk show, Thick of the Night, and spent the next 37 years living in Los Angeles. Fired twice in the first 26 weeks working on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show, but never left, and eventually became head writer, replacing the guy that fired me. Ended up broke and unemployed in L.A. with no prospects when I got a call from someone I barely knew telling me that Mickey Rooney's writer had just died and that Mickey would be calling me in 10 minutes. This kept me in L.A. long enough to find another job and then another, eventually teaching George Carlin how to put his pilot together for HBO and writing gags for Magic Johnson, Rodney Dangerfield, and Joan Rivers. That is a lot to unpack, so let's get going. Welcome, Daryl, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I'm good, uh, to do them in reverse. I, I now am living at the moment in uh, Toronto. I'm living in the beaches. Fantastic. So you're you're in the right part of town. You got the great summers, and even in the winter, it's nice to be down there, isn't it? Uh, I love I love the beaches. It's a great area. It's just like a little village off to the side of the big city. What is your life and work status? Are you retired, semi-retired, still going full steam ahead? Uh, semi-retired. You know, every once in a while, some project will come along, and I'll get involved. I'm involved with a couple of projects at the moment. Uh, you know, and if they go. They go, and if they don't, then I'm just happy with playing with my record collection. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, we got lots to get to, so let's please go all the way back, get the Daryl Vickers story. You were not originally from the Schwa, nor Canada. Where were you born, and, and please describe your upbringing. Uh, I was born in a in Derbyshire, and uh, my family, a lot of them are like coal miners and... Uh, plain working folk kind of thing in the Midlands of England. And uh, my father, though, was always a bit of a dreamer. And uh, back in the 60s, you could come to Canada without any documentation or anything because you were a member of the the Empire of the Commonwealth. So uh, basically in 67, he uh, packed up uh, the family and uh, flew to Toronto Basically, got a few jobs. He was uh, actually an interesting story I just found out. He worked at the Don Jail, which is the big old jail that overlooks uh, the Don Valley. And there was a black musician there that he always wondered. He was a young guy and he was in for drug offenses. And he, he took a shine to my father and he was a very flamboyant guy. And he always wondered if he ever amounted to anything. And just literally after decades, I asked him uh, what his name was. And apparently it was Ricky Matthews, which is Rick James. So my father was Rick James's favorite jailer. <laughs> that that's uh, not many people can get that title. Yeah, Daryl, how did you meet your writing partner Andrew Nichols, and how soon did you start collaborating? Uh, we started. Um, I met him in junior high in grade seven. We were in the same class, and uh, I invited him to a Christmas party. Uh, one year, and he was a uh, play guitar, and he was a songwriter, and I wanted to be a songwriter. So it was like the the Ishtar. Uh, two guys get together, and we start writing uh, terrible songs, and we did that for a number of years, uh, and then got into comedy writing sometime in in high school, 
and uh, the comedy, you only need a typewriter. For, for To be a musician, you need a recording equipment and guitars and amps and other musicians, and it was incredibly expensive. We didn't have any money, so, so we went the comedy writing route. The cheaper way to go. <laughs> Simplicity always wins out. Yeah. How did the two of you end up moving to Los Angeles in 1983 to pursue your careers? Well, we'd been there in um, 1982. Basically, we were working for um, a guy named um, Graham Haley, who later went on to Gra Haley's Handy Hints, a series of books on how to take stains out of clothes by using uh, bubble gum and lemon oil, those kind of things. And he had this... Uh, it was called the Comedy Bank, and there was a show we did for uh, Carling O'Keefe. It was a little comedy show, and uh, we did industrials for him, and there were a number of articles in the paper, and Alan Thicke's mother lived in the harbor front, and she used to cut out little articles she thought would be of interest to him and mail them to him in L.A., and one of them was about the Comedy Bank, and uh, Alan contacted the Comedy Bank and said, I'm, you know, I'm always looking for writers. Do you have, what do you have? And uh, so basically, uh, Graham took, I think he had like 10, 15 writers, and he asked them all to send in some jokes uh, that he would send to Alan, and Alan picked ours. And uh, I think the first thing with, he had a show called Fast Company. And basically, it was a, a repackaging of his daytime show because he had a, a variety show in Canada. And he would take a subject each week and then he would take, you know, pets or uh, arrests or whatever the thing was. And then he would take little segments from the uh, daytime show and then do little wraparounds and jokes on it. And, that, and he basically, uh, we went down to L.A. Uh, and stayed in his guest house and wrote jokes, uh, came back to Canada, spent... Uh, nine months unemployed. I thought, you know, going to LA would be, would be like prove our bona fides and we would be welcomed back as well. Now we're really going to hire these guys because obviously people in LA think they're good writers. Uh, so, but no, they, they were, it was the exact opposite. Everybody was snooty to us. Like they were pissed off that we'd been invited to LA and yeah, we didn't work uh, basically almost until Alan called us to go down, uh, to be researchers on Thick of the Night, which was his big uh, show in L.A. with uh, Fred Silverman. If I may set that up, Thick of the Night was a syndicated late-night talk show hosted by, as you say, Canada's own Alan Thick in 1984. Perhaps overhyped upon its debut, it had a horrible time Perhaps. <laughs> well, it was, it was aired by most stations at least 30 minutes after Johnny Carson's Tonight Show had aired. Multiple episodes were being taped at once. There was lip-syncing of the musical performances. Ultimately, the quality of the guests was eh. And the show met its demise after less than a year. Daryl, how was the Alan Thick Thick of the Night experience? I'm glad I was young. Uh, it was grueling. It was, well, the show itself wanted to be everything to everybody. And we had, you know, we had an unbelievable band. I mean, just all, they were all top studio musicians. We had this huge band. We had Richard Belzer and Gilbert Gottfried and, and a, a bunch of uh, top-notch people in a comedy group. Alan had poached a number of Tonight Show writers, but it was just, it was just too big. It was just too ambitious. We had this gigantic set and... Every day it was something terrible happened. And we, you know, we, the days were enormous and we would shoot two 90 minute shows Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. 
And Monday would have we have off, but Alan would bring us down to uh, the studio, uh, to his house, and we would do notes. So there was never a day off. It was just, uh, I think we were 26 at the time. I think if we would have been 28, we would have died. It was just that, it was just so draining. I mean, everybody, we, everybody was zombies. And once the show started to go downhill, of course, then people started to get fired. And they fired the executive producer. And they brought in a guy, and I liked the guy. He was uh, Ernie DeMassa from a show called, I can't remember the title at the moment, but what happened was uh, every day somebody from, from the show uh, that had been, we'd been there for several months, you know, because there's a lot of pre-production and things, uh, somebody would disappear and be replaced by one of the people from Ernie's show. And it was just a, it was just a horrible, horrible. Uh, nobody trusted anybody else, and I didn't know it at the time because uh, we were just lowly researchers. But there was an enormous drug problem on the show, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, so I guess there were a lot of great uh, musicians who could afford that stuff, and and a lot of other people. Uh, we we could hardly afford food, so we we weren't into drugs at all. Uh, but it just, uh, yeah, I think we left stupidly, stupidly. We quit the show because. We weren't made writers. We were promised that we'd be made writers after a number of weeks. And, you know, Alan, at the time, everything was, we were hemorrhaging uh, viewers. We were hem- we were losing all this staff. Uh, I mean, several writers were let go. Uh, so he, was, he could never hire us. So we quit on a matter of principle. Well, principle will get you nowhere in show business. It, you know, it, uh, and I, I can't believe we managed to stay in town. It was just a, a just a series of lucky things that we were able to take advantage of to to cobble together uh, an existence down there. Well, let's talk about the big one, Daryl. The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson. From Hollywood, The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson. This is Ed McMahon, along with Doc Severinsen and the NBC Orchestra, inviting you to join Johnny and his guests, Buddy Hackett, John Lithgow, and another segment of Moron Movies. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's Johnny. For six years, starting in 1986 and lasting until his retirement show on May 22, 1992, you wrote and created 770 hours of produced material. Johnny Carson, the legend. How did you get hired for The Tonight Show? Uh, we had a, a manager at the time that we managed to get through many flukes, uh, Ted Ziegler, who had been a regular on the Sonny and Cher show. And uh, he was, you know, he knew a lot of people in town. And he knew a guy named Shelley Cohen who was the uh, music coordinator for the show. He, he was kind of like a um, somebody who was the conduit between the band and the union, if there were any problems, and those, those kind of things. And I think he had to fill out all the forms of the material they you know to make sure everybody got paid and things like that. And he had heard that they had fired two guys, which were uh, Gene and Reese, who eventually went on to do The Simpsons. And mm. I, I, Gene's still on the show, and uh, Mike Reese is... I think he works on it uh, periodically. Uh, so they were they were let go after I think eighteen months or something. And uh, basically, what you were we were working writing scripts for a show in Canada at the moment called uh, Check It Out, and we got the call from Ted saying that you know there's an opening. And basically, what you had to do is you had to write a package of stuff. You know, we did an edge of wetness. Carnacs weren't something you did. Johnny thought 
wrongly that they were easy to do, so he didn't want you to do Karnak's. But any of his other kind of uh, sketches, we, we did a package and we sent it in, and I think a month or so went by, and uh, we got a call, and uh, Johnny wanted to see us. Yeah, that was uh, it was terrifying in a way. So we were we were so scared uh, that uh, for the meeting we took our manager in with us because we we did, we were afraid to meet him alone. We could see how he was. <laughs> An unbelievable legend. I mean, we grew sure. up in Canada, you know, watching The Tonight Show and, you know, as, as comedy writers uh, sitting in a, a shitty apartment in Oshawa, hoping to one day be able to eat from writing comedy. The idea of writing on The Tonight Show was, you know, like the, it was Camelot. It was, it was that, you know, that uh, golden, uh, that gold at the end of the rainbow. So, yeah, he drove us in and this was literally the Monday after uh, Joan Rivers had surprisingly announced that she was uh, going to do her own show as in competition on the Friday. So things were kind of up and down. And we'd written for Joan. We'd sold a few jokes to Joan. So basically what happens, you go in and uh, you meet Fred de Cordova and he gives you his speech. And Fred was, wow, he was, he was quite a character. This was Johnny's executive producer for, for he didn't start with them, but he'd been there for, I think, like 15 years by that time. And, and for some reason, they were in these little portable units. They weren't even in the main studio. So you went into this little portable unit and Fred was there smoking a cigarette. Uh, gentlemen, I'm going to take you over to see Mr. Carson and do not lie to him. If you, you know, if he asks you about Joan Rivers, of course you wrote for Joan Rivers. And so you got this whole little spiel, and then you you got up and you walked to the the and you entered the studio, and there was a, this big you know main thoroughfare thing, and you got on a golf cart because because Fred would never walk anywhere, and Johnny was <laughs> on the other side of the studio. So there was me, Andrew, um, Ted, and and Fred driving this golf cart, and we're all packed on this little thing driving through NBC studios, uh, taking a left, and then then you walked up this long flight of stairs. And Johnny's office was at the top, and it was a tiny little office. And, uh, yeah, we just had this little conversation where we were not impressive at all. And, you know, Johnny was up there, and he was very humble. You know, uh, don't afraid to be wild, guys, if I pick you up on the show. And, you know, we're, we're still trying to, you know, amuse the people, da-da-da-da-da. Then we, we went down, uh, got on Fred's golf cart again. He drove us back to his office, and we went home. And I thought that would be it, because I... There was something in me that just couldn't believe that we would ever be writers on The Tonight Show. So it was just, uh, it was for the next 24 hours, I was just in agony. And then we got a call the next day and saying, you know, basically the head writer hadn't found anybody better than us. So we were, we were the guys they were going to hire. So that's how we started. It's fabulous. And you were there, Daryl, for six years, six eventually years, yeah. rising to the title of head writers. So many Johnny questions. How did you interact with him? How would you work with him? I understand that eventually you would be going to his Malibu home to uh, to work with him. Yes. Well, to, to start with, as I said, we had the, the interview with him. And then we started work. And I did not talk to Johnny Carson again for two and a half years. <laughs> Basically, uh, you know, Ray talked to, to Johnny. And uh, we would give the material to Ray. And uh, Ray would talk to Johnny. So Ray being the head writer at the time. Ray was the head writer at the time. And um, it was not a happy, it was not a happy place under Ray. So, so basically, uh, there had been a strike. Uh, Johnny had come back a few weeks early. And then we'd been brought back in. And 
Ray was always doing, he was a little burnt out at the time. And basically what he would do is he would wait until an hour and a half before Johnny got there, before he could even start writing. So he would write things quickly and he'd use one or two of our jokes grudgingly. And uh, he would cram it together because he couldn't write in the morning. He would sit there watching television. And so, you know, sometimes the stuff was good and sometimes it wasn't because it would, it would all have been written in an hour and a half. So I think Johnny, after coming back, did, decided that he didn't want this anymore. So one day, people start getting invited down to, to Johnny's office and word starts to get around. And Ray goes down and uh, Kevin Mahone, one of the other writers, goes down. And then one of the uh, couple of the other writers go down. And then uh, at the end of the afternoon, Andrew and I get invited down. Like, Uh-oh. So we're, we're in his... Uh, we're basically waiting there in uh, the uh, in his waiting room, and Fred comes out of Johnny's office, and he said, "Hello, gentlemen." And I don't know how often I talked to Fred. It wasn't certainly very often. Uh, only a couple of times more than I talked to Johnny in those two and a half years. And uh, Fred said, uh, "Don't worry about it. It's nothing bad." Uh, so we went into his office, and he basically said he'd fired Ray and Kevin and um, a couple uh, Goodman Klein, who'd worked with him for 30 years and apparently wow. he after 30 years he, he he invited them down to his office and said guys it just isn't working out and they they were gone and uh we were basically the only the last men standing so we became head writers there was a huge purge and suddenly you and your partner andrew are head writers now the pressure's on <laughs> i i, I want to ask you about a few of the other characters from that time obviously sidekick ed mcmahon i understand he had his own bodyguard he did. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, he was an odd guy. Ed, and uh, yeah, he did have this bodyguard and a, and a, a chauffeur who drove him to work. And uh, he would stand outside his uh, Ed's dressing room. <laughs> one day, one of the writers decided to, uh, that he did, he got this big box and he wrote on the big, on the box, uh, big, bun to, big gun to kill Ed with and walked <laughs> past the bodyguard and waited. <laughs> Nothing. He didn't get any reaction at all. But uh, Ed was, uh, you know, he was not, he was an announcer, but he was not a great announcer. He, you know, a person who's, who's really good knows where to put the, uh, you know, the emphasis in a sense. Ed didn't. It was just random. You know, the, he would hit a word here or there. And you know, he'd been on the show, obviously, by the time we got there for 25 years or something. And really didn't think he had to rehearse anymore. So it was, it was very spotty with Ed. But he was very reliable. Even under tough conditions, he'd show up. Uh, he would. Uh, I remember once that we got a little worried about him because it was his birthday and he'd been out for a few cocktails with his uh, his country club friends. And uh, so Denise, who was our researcher's office, was right across from Ed's. And apparently Ed was laying on the couch all afternoon trying to sober up. So we didn't know whether he was going to make it that night or not, but he, he managed to marshal his forces and, uh, and uh, make it to the couch. A real trooper. Now, band <laughs> yes, leader Doc Severinsen, I think he had a relationship with Johnny off air. They, they would vacation together. You know, I don't know. I, I, I talked to Doc a couple of times. Doc was a really nice guy. Uh, we just didn't have a ton of interaction with the band. Uh, but, you know, everybody liked Doc. Doc was a, was a very cool guy. And, uh, yeah, I, it was by the time we got there, Johnny had gone through, you know, he was on his last marriage. 
And uh, I think a lot of the the wilder times in in his career had you know he was he was good. I think he was fifty eight by the time we started the show, something like that. So he had mellowed a lot. Uh, you know, there I think there were there were times on the show where it was a, a lot more tumultuous than well. And the drinkers uh, on the Tonight Show writing staff. I mean, some of the famous. Stories about the show. We were dull guys. We, you know, we we go out and maybe we'd have a on a Friday we'd have like a beer with lunch. But those guys, it was a place called like Papitos or something. This Mexican restaurant where uh, there were there was a, you know Pat McCormick and a lot of the guys were real big drinkers. So they would go out. They do they try and cram in all the writing uh, before lunch and then they just go out and have like a six uh, cocktail. Uh, Mexican uh, dinner, and by the afternoon they were just all wasted. So it was it was a different time back then. Daryl, it must have been very surreal when you did get time to meet with Johnny at his Malibu house. There was uh, he's into tennis. I understand he had a butler. What was the experience like working at Johnny's house with Johnny? Well, yeah, Andrew. It was basically Andrew's doing. I think when we went down uh, to become head writers and found out about everybody else, one of the things Andrew said to Johnny was. You know, the, there's, there was really no interaction, so we could really never tell when Johnny was happy and when he wasn't happy. And we could never sort of guide ourselves towards what would make him happy because we never talked to him. So basically what happened was Johnny, we would go down on Mondays because by that time he did Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. He didn't do Monday or Tuesday anymore. So we would drive down there uh, Monday morning. And uh, he, he lived right, you know, right on the, the ocean. He had this big house and it was in a crescent. And in the middle of the crescent, there was like a, a two acre piece of land, you know, the thing you drive around that makes a crescent. And he had a uh, tennis pavilion in that crescent. And he had this, uh, there was a pavilion overlooking the big tennis court. And, uh, oh, it was, we never went, we never went into the house until the, the last party. Uh, at his house for everybody. but So we would go to the tennis court, and they had this gigantic uh, big metal door that opened into the fabulous gardens and tennis court and pavilion. And there would be, uh, on the opposite side of the road, there was a, a gigantic gate and a gun tower uh, overlooking the gate. And uh, so you'd get out of the car, and you'd walk up to the big metal door, and the guy in the guard tower would press a button, and the, the gate would open. And Rolf was his uh, butler, and Rolf's wife was the cook. We never met uh, the wife. And uh, so he, he would be there. And every once in a while, you'd go in, and Rolf would say, the boss is in a super mood today. <laughs> so you know, you know, it was, so that was always a good day. And uh, so basically, we would go in, and we would pitch stuff for the week. You know, if we haven't done Karnak in a while. We'd had an idea about doing this or that, and we'd talk. And when we ran out of ideas, we'd ask uh, Johnny about Bob Hope. And, and Johnny would go on for about, about half an hour about how he hated having Bob Hope on the show or whatever or some funny story. And then uh, then we would go back. We would drive all the way back to uh, The Tonight Show, which was like an hour and a half drive from Malibu. And then we would start writing whatever it was that we had to do for the week. In addition to Johnny Carson, of course, there were so many legends that came on The Tonight Show as guest hosts, and I, I wondered how you would work with them, Daryl. Did they bring their own writers? Did, did you write for them? I'm thinking of people like Gary Shandling, Chevy Chase, Jay Leno, Billy Crystal. Well, the odd thing was that, you know, and coming into the show, we had no idea how it works. So we come in and we do, um, I think, two weeks. We were on the show for two weeks writing for Johnny and doing 
And then uh, Shanley, this was, I think, Shanley's very first appearance as, as guest host. Uh, he comes in and talks to everybody. And we find out that literally every writer goes away. So after two weeks, Andrew and I are the only writers on the show. Everybody, it's like a desert. It's a ghost town. So we go down to Gary's dressing room. And we would write jokes during the day for him. And then Ray would give like this gigantic package of stuff he wanted us to write because he didn't want you know anybody to ever have two seconds to himself. So we would be writing for Gary uh, until like 2.30 or something. And then we would have to write all this other stuff, which Ray never used. Uh, you know, it was keep busy work uh, when he got back from his fabulous vacation from wherever he went. So, yeah, it was it was it was odd being the only writers. We you know we wrote for Gary, we wrote for, and I'm not going to remember everybody, but um, we wrote for um, Chevy Chase. We wrote for uh, the guy from uh, Night Court, which I don't remember his name. Oh, yeah, John Larroquette. John Larroquette, and uh, I don't know if there were any. The only ones we didn't write any jokes for. I think uh, Billy Crystal, Bill Cosby was on, and Bill basically just came on. He did two shows in a row, or two nights in a row, and he just came out and ad-libbed. He didn't do a single joke. It was just like, uh, I'm, I'm Bill Cosby, I'm just going to go out and be amusing. And then, of course, <laughs> Jay Leno had literally had his own writers. Those were the, the oh, three. Yeah. Now, when Shanlin came on, he did have guys who wrote for him, but we also wrote for him because he Shannon was one of those people that you could never have enough jokes for him to go through and reject before he went on and and would he have brought uh, Dennis Miller in with him to write for him? Dennis was there yeah and uh Alan Zweibel who was from also from Saturday Night Live uh I think Alan was there for the first few months uh and then after that Dennis would come in Dennis was a real character Alan was a very sweet man uh, I remember that, but Dennis, you know, he was he was kind of a hipster and didn't hadn't gone into that kind of very right wing thing he did during the Bush years. He was much more uh, just a cool hip guy when we knew him. I, I like Dennis. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I'd like him now, but I did. I certainly liked him at the time. And how was Chevy Chase as a guest host? He he could bring great talent. His good buddy Paul Simon would show up, but I yeah, it, I, it I was, understand he would get a little off topic. Yeah, I mean, Chevy basically came in and he had a number of uh, things he thought might be funny. Uh, so he had this list of things for us. The dwarf tossing was one. He, I think he'd just been back from Hawaii and he, he found out that the Hawaiian alphabet only had 12 uh, letters in it. And there were like four topics he gave us. So, you know, we were basically uh, on the show, you, you would write pages of, of, of jokes. That's just, the, the, you know, that's just what. If you were a Tonight Show writer... You had to crank them out uh, and because you had to do it every day and you you know you were writing the monologue and then you were writing the death spot so you had to just crank out joke after joke so we would give him several pages on um the 12 um the 12 letters and we would give him several pages on on uh, dwarf tossing what we didn't know was <laughs> chevy wasn't going to go through them and and uh, check off the ones he liked he just read them in order it was just like <laughs> this surreal thing and we would do jokes with the, the guest host, uh, Johnny didn't need them uh, only on, basically, on civilians, which were people who come on and uh, they weren't 
real entertainers. They were just those oddball kind of people. You would write jokes uh, for the question, and then we would write, and you'd know what the answer was, because Johnny always knew what the answer was from everybody, a celebrity or anybody. So the question is, so what have you been up to? And then John, then it would tell you in a little thing, I've, I've been out uh, on vacation and I've done this or whatever. And then you would do a joke. So we wrote jokes on his cards. And Paul came on, and uh, Simon, and you say he was talking about Graceland and finding something on a cassette tape, and it had inspired him. And Chevy just started to read our jokes, and riffing. <laughs> and eventually, Paul got, and they were really good friends, Paul, Simon, and, and Chevy. And eventually, he turned to him and said, you know, are you going to listen to this story, or are you just going to tell these jokes and, and interrupt me all the time? It was, just, it, was, it was an odd, and after that, I think he decided to do his own show. Which, of course, uh, wasn't probably a good idea either. Now, at this time, Daryl, uh, Joan Rivers had already, as you said, made her announcement she was leaving for Fox. She was now persona non grata. What, what was the, like, were you never to mention the name Joan Rivers while working for Johnny Carson? And was it as bad as it sounded? It, you know, it wasn't, um, I, it, was, it was certainly a tumultuous time. And, you know, we were the new writers that... The Joan thing was going on. I don't know. I don't think it was like, uh, you know, I don't think it was like Leon Trotsky where her picture had been cut out of all the history books and things and, and you got sent to, uh, you know, Siberia if you mentioned her name. Uh, but it was, it, I think there was a tension there and, you, you know, you didn't know how the show was going to go because... You know, she'd been so popular on The Tonight Show. You know, most of the people who'd come along as, as like Alan Thicke, who'd come along as, to be the competition, were out of the blue and just were never successful. But Joan was a different story. You didn't know whether uh, that was going to be the one that was going to... Uh, of course, it wasn't. And uh, so we nobody... Ever, but I think there was a slight tension at the time that this new show was going to be some problem for us. But no, it wasn't. I also want to ask you about Dana Carvey from Saturday Night Live. He has a podcast now, and he says he was always on The Tonight Show until he started doing impersonations of Johnny on Saturday Night Live. And he may have insulted Johnny and therefore got banned from being on The Tonight Show in the future. Was Dana Carvey ever banned? or how did Was Johnny really hurt by that? Uh, you know, he was a tiny bit. I remember going down to his office, um, you know, because if there was, we didn't go down a, t a ton, but if there was a, a desk spot that would needed props or, or um, like, uh, you know, you would hold up pictures, we would go down to the, uh, we would go down to his office, we would help him sequence them. And, you know, if there was any tricks to anything, we would explain them and things like that. So we went down there one day and, uh and, uh, the, you know, there, there was all the papers. And, and I, I could tell he said something like, you know, I don't really say that, do I? And, you know, obviously it was a caricature of him. But, it, it, you know, he'd been so revered for so long that somebody taking a shot at him, I think, surprised him a little. I don't think he was bitter at it. I think he was just a little surprised. And, you know, basically by then he was like 63 or something. And, you know, it, you know, it, it was... It, it was not considered the hip show anymore. And I, I think he was hurt. I don't think he was, was he banned? I don't know. That was, that was in a different department. Booking was Fred and, you know, Fred, Fred could be a cruel guy. I mean, I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that Fred just decided, well, that's, that's it, buddy. You're, you're not coming on anymore.
If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Daryl Vickers, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We got great comedians including Bazaar's John Biner, singing impressionist André-Philippe Gagnon, Yuck Yuck's founder Mark Breslin, and Tom Farley on the legacy of his late brother SNL's Chris Farley. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Daryl, you were working with Johnny until his retirement. I want to ask you about memories of the last few shows leading up to his final retirement show, May 22nd, 1992. It's been said in hindsight that Johnny wishes his second last show had been his last show. What, what do you think he meant by that? Well, and you, you know, again, you could never tell. You could never, from day to day, you never knew how good a show was going to be. Sometimes you had high expectations and it just absolutely crashed. And sometimes, you know, you go, well, let's, you know, let's get through it. There'll be another show tomorrow and it would do well. So you didn't know. And I can remember the last show because I used to stand backstage um, and he came out and, uh, you know, the, we had two guests. He had Bette Midler and he had... Um, uh, I'm going to lose his name now. You know, you get to a certain age and names just disappear from your head. Uh, the, the, the comedian on. And it, it was magic. And, you know, the bet singing, uh, you know, Rack Him Up Joe at the end and then running off. And I was backstage. So basically she sings the song. She gets up and runs off. And I'm standing back there, and all of a sudden, I see her come through the curtains and run back, and she runs past me, bawling her eyes out. I mean, there was nothing that was staged about this thing. I mean, she was just devastated. I mean, it was just an unbelievable real moment that these people saying goodbye to a legend. And I think, uh, Johnny, you know, he just knew how what worked and what didn't work, and he knew at the end of that show that it was absolute magic. The whole show was... Robin Williams, I just remembered his name, was brilliant and funny, and, and she was just such a great guest, and, and it, was, it was magic. And then he came on at the next night and did a clip show, which was nice, and it was, you know, it was nostalgic and things, but you could never match the power of, of those, last, you know, the, those last two guests, and especially Beth at the end, saying goodbye. She was basically being America and saying goodbye to him for everybody. And uh, yeah, he, he did say in retrospect, that, and, but again, you never know, uh, that yeah. that would have been the moment that everybody would have remembered that her running out crying would have been just a perfect ending to a, a perfect career. After Johnny retired, did he disappear or would you get together with him post-retirement? What were your interactions with Johnny Carson after his final show? Um, I think like twice a year we would go down. He had a, an office down uh, in Venice, uh, and he would. Uh, there was a restaurant called I can't remember Shatsi or something like that. And we would go down and we meet Jeff there. Jeff was his uh, nephew who was one of the coordinators on the show, and he was the one who dealt with us more than Fred and Peter. And uh, we would go down and we'd do, you know, it would, Johnny was a different guy off the show because there was a lot of pressure on that show. And he was very businesslike because we would, and I'm digressing here, but we would take the phone call in the morning to discuss the, the, the material for that day. And with Johnny, he was not one of those people who was on the phone for long. He did. So basically, you had to know your shit. And the phone call would come in about 20 after 10 in the morning. 
Andrew took it because I was just not buttoned down enough. And he would say, okay, Johnny, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and then uh, hopefully uh, we'll uh, end it with this. And then the conversation was over. It, you know, a minute would be a long conversation with him. Uh, and he was very, obviously he had to be very businesslike. But after he retired, he was a relaxed guy. You know, he liked to talk about the old days and he would, you know, he would... He would, he would be a more of, it was, it was a fun time. I mean, the pressure was off us too, because, you know, we weren't, every time we met Johnny, we, we had to present material for that week and you were always trying to keep him amused and, you know, he was the boss and everything. But, uh, uh, yeah, those couple of times a year we would go down and we would, you know, we'd joke about Steve Allen or we would do, you know, we, we'd bring props and amuse him and do things and, uh, yeah, we'd just sit around and have, uh, have lunch with him and it was a great time and we'd have a you know glass of wine and he always paid with money you know he had a wall <laughs> of hundreds i guess because if you're a big celebrity and i don't know this i know johnny did it but you didn't want people to see your credit card for you know because there would be information and you could yeah. i guess check people's addresses and things on it so he would always have this big roll of hundreds and at the end of lunch he would just peel off the hundreds and leave them on the table we would go back to his office talk about something else and uh, then go home that is fabulous i i could picture that uh there as you may know the tonight show is being shown again on something called antenna tv and they do something smart they match the date so if it's february 27th they'll show february 27th from whatever year and i have to tell you the show holds up and it's so great seeing Don Rickles and Sinatra and Arnold Schwarzenegger, young Jerry Seinfeld. The show still holds up. I want to move on if I made a George Carlin. Uh, this was okay. unique because he's an absolute stand-up legend. And here you are, Daryl, walking him through the basics of putting together a pilot for HBO. Uh, it was, yeah, it was, we had been in town for like 10 minutes i mean we had you know we we done uh thick of the night stupidly quit then through the fluke of flukes we'd ended up as as mickey rooney's writers and that had kept us in uh in town and we'd done a couple of things and i get a call one day that we uh, we were good friends with with george's brother pat who was older than george but we'd work with him on thick of the night we had written something for Pat uh, because he 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 wanted I can't remember what it was but he wanted to do something called the Stonington's I think uh, Pat really liked to smoke pot and everything in Pat's life revolved around marijuana so at some point jo uh, George had he was doing this pilot in the early days of HBO and uh, Pat McCormick who was a good friend of his he brought him on but Pat while being a very very funny guy was not ex was was not as buttoned down as a writer. You know, jokes were his thing. Structure was not. And we'd written for uh, Check It Out. We'd done some sitcom work. And we'd um, and Pat had given him this pilot we'd written back in Oshawa. And he, wrote, he read it on the plane going somewhere and really liked it and phoned us from the plane. So we're sitting in this little apartment in Burbank and the phone rings and it's George Carlin on the phone. And he said, listen, I got this pilot. And I just read yours, and I really liked it. And I'm, you know, I just, I just don't know how to put it together. And I've got these bits, and I, you know, I'm bringing in my friends, all these comedians, and I just wondered if you guys would, you know, come down and help me put some shape to it. I said, yeah, George, we'll do that. <laughs> so we're, I think we were 27, something like that, and you know, we'd been in LA for maybe a year, and we're sitting there in an office. There's Andrew and I, 
and George Carlin, and that's it. There are no other writers on this thing, and we're, we're you know, we, he gave us all the material he was going to do, and and we, we would go in, and we would sit in his offices. He had a big office building in Brentwood, and we would say, well, George, I think we should do this, and, and, and then we'd go to this bit, because I think this, and then we, you know, we'd write bits for him, and, and George would be taking notes, and I'm thinking, it, luckily at the time, the enormity of what we were doing didn't sink in. We, when it was just another writer's gig, in a way, but, I mean, like Johnny. Yeah, I mean, George was, was, I mean, you didn't get any bigger if you were a comedy writer than George Carlin. I mean, he was, I can remember driving around uh, back in, in high school. There was this crazy guy I used to hang out with, and he, we would drive around town in his, his Chevy, and he'd have a, he had eight-track tapes, and one of them was, I think, AMFM. And we would listen to George Carlin and, 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 and just laugh and drive around and... You know, and then I'm sitting there next to the man uh, telling him how to do his show uh, from from being this high school guy, listening to him on an eight track tape. And it just it was so surreal. But I, I mean, I can't believe that Andrew and I weren't just catatonic by being so, <laughs> so just absolutely gobsmacked at, at being in this position. But it, you know, we managed to get through it. it was, and he was a super nice guy. You know, he'd had all his heart attacks and his his problems with cocaine. Like Johnny, you know, he'd mellowed. And by the time we met him, he'd returned to, uh, he was just such a gentleman and such a smart guy. And so, you know, talented. And, and, and yeah, so it was, it was a, just a pleasure working with, with George. Well, when you talk about surreal, you got Mickey Rooney, George Carlin, Johnny Carson. You also worked with Irvin Magic Johnson on the <laughs> Magic Hour with Magic Johnson. He was, of course, top five NBA player in history and an absolutely stunning personality, always smiling. Everyone loves him. Why was that show a challenge? And what was your experience like working with Urban Magic Johnson? We got a call one day. Uh, they were doing the pilot and they were doing something I thought was pretty smart. They were going to shoot, I think, four shows. And then they were going to chop up those four shows into one presentation reel for, for the show. And we were brought in late. I don't remember who was there, but it wasn't working out or something. And they brought us in. And the guy, the, the, I really liked the executive producers. So they weren't right for this thing. We, we work with uh, the talent. And the, the guy that we're going to use as the, the second banana wasn't working out. So they fired him, oh, God, within two days of our first pilot. Uh, may have mm -hmm. even been after the first one. I don't remember. But, you know, so they brought in Steve White, who is a really good guy and funny and worked really, really well with magic. And so we we would be writing this stuff and I would, you know, we'd be trying to tell them how shows work because these guys had never done this before. And one of the main guys, the head guy, was Lon Rosen, who was a sports, uh, he was uh, magic's uh, manager or something. So these guys had no experience doing this stuff so so but basically things work really well uh there were enough segments we had some big people on i think we had mel gibson on we had um uh you know people because magic was a super nice guy and people really liked him and if you had kept the show simple you come on maybe for half hour you give magic some questions he talks you know he talks to mel gibson whoever they're all buddies and everybody magic's just an affable guy who loves to laugh and talk to people and he actually is very interested in what you have to say unlike some hosts 
and you know who basically would like uh, the guests to come on and ask them questions for half an hour. Yeah, you know, so that would have worked marvelously, uh, you know, because he was such an engaging personality. But no, what they, you know, it, it like Alan Thicke, it was basically let's be everything to everybody. Let's just, you know, let's bring on um, Whitney Houston, and let's not just have her sing. Let's have her vacuum the carpet on the set because she <laughs> vacuums when she's nervous or something. And so it becomes this big circus. And you know, anytime anything went wrong, the slightest wrong. The show would take another uh, turn, and you know I would tell people on the show and say, you know, if you if you if you have an idea, and you stick to it, regardless of what happens, you have a very slim chance of it being a success. But if you don't stick to it and you veer all over the place, you have no chance of success. And they took that second route, and they like it was the Bible. I mean, it was just every every ten minutes, it was a different show, and we had bits. You know, again, I had to go on. They fired the head writer. They brought us on. Basically, we 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 said we weren't going to do the head writing of the uh, the show. It was it was just too stressful, and we could tell it was just not going to be run right. Uh, but they they were having troubles with that, and they lowballed us when they they phoned us up and said they offered us a job and they offered us nothing for it. So we said no, and they hired some other guy, and the other guy wasn't working out. So Magic really liked us, and the and of course the pilots did really well. So they 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 offered us more money to come back, and well we had already another show, so we couldn't do it full time. We could only do three days a week, and we said no, and they offered us more money. We said no. And Andrew didn't want to do it under any circumstance, but they just kept offering us more and more money. And it just, and eventually, I mean, it was just ridiculous. So we said yes, and we went in, so we worked three days a week. And they didn't listen to a single word we said. But it would, oh. be, a, it would be this thing where where we go up and and the, the something would, hadn't gone right with, with Magic's monologue. And they wanted to change the whole thing. And I, I, I went to them and I said, listen, I work for the very, very best host that ever was in the history of television. And he would go out and bomb every once in a while. It, you know, it just is, you can't be a success every single second. It just isn't possible. But, you know, again, they, and we had spots where it was go, doing well, and the next thing was, you know, the, the executive producer said, you know, we've done enough of those. We don't want to do that spot anymore. Oh, yeah, a spot that works. We find one, and you don't want to do it. It's like Johnny Carson going, you know, Carnet, I don't know. It, you know, people like it, but uh, I've done it four times. Let's not do it again for the next 12 years. Are you insane? It was just, it was just wrong decision after wrong decision after wrong decision. And, uh, yeah, the, the show basically fell in on itself where it could have been something, I think, uh, you know, again, simple. Keep it simple. Have Go to your strengths. What are magic strengths? Not don't try and hide his weaknesses by making, you know, having clowns dancing around him every three seconds. Just stick to what he does well and you'll you'll have something at least that has a chance of success. But. Well, he he had a soft landing because we still magic is still beloved. So uh, oh, yeah. as you say, no, they can't, as, as, they and can't he was a truly nights. truly nice guy. You know, I, I didn't know him before the show, but you know, uh, we would go in and we would, uh, and he would sit there because he was a he was a sports guy, so he was used to being coached. He wasn't like a star saying, "I'm." Let me tell you how it is, kid. You would go in and he he would sit there and says, "Okay, guys, what, what do you want me to do, and how how do you want me to do it?" 
And then we would tell him, and he would go out and give it his best. He, he, he was a sports guy. That's, that's his philosophy. Well, he was a sports star who was open to coaching, but you also worked with an entertainment star who was also open to coaching. You worked with Burt Reynolds late in his career. He would call you at odd hours. He only called, yeah, he only called the once. Uh, basically, he was doing voiceovers for this uh, sitcom I was running. They were, I was in L.A. at the time. The executive producer had uh, gone to, because he, he worked with uh, Bert on uh, Evening Shade, was that his show? Mm-hmm. And so he knew him personally. So he'd gone to do these voiceovers in, in, uh, at, his, at his place in Jupiter, Florida. And uh, I, used to, I used to really do some crazy stuff on this show. And I had this word, and I don't even remember what the word was. Uh, let's say it was exposition, but it was more complicated. That. It was more of an obscure word. And I got a call at like five o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning. It was 9 o'clock, in, in, and it was Burt Reynolds, and he wanted to know how to pronounce exposition. I said, okay, <laughs> it's, it's, you do it this way. He said, okay, thanks. And I hung up the phone. That was my, that my, was my one interaction with Burt. <laughs> he was still a pro. Yeah, he wanted to know how to get it right. Yeah, they were, yeah. And I believe me, I've worked on shows where people didn't care whether it was right or not. I had one thing, though, an animation show. I was just telling somebody the other day where we had the Fabergé egg, you know, the, the famous Russian egg. And you, you in, in animation, you write it, and it comes back a year later, and you don't see it in the interim. And they had pronounced it Fabergé. So it was nice to be consulted. It was nice to be consulted <laughs> on this and the exact, uh, how do you pronounce this word? Daryl, the other guy I want to ask you about, Jerry Seinfeld was on Johnny Carson so many times, and this was obviously pre-Seinfeld. Was it obvious he was the next big star, or what were your thoughts on Jerry Seinfeld? You know, I remember the, the first, he wasn't on much when I was there, um, and I had no interactions with, with Jerry. But I do remember the first time he came on and just slayed it. And just he just hit a rhythm. It was, you know, Johnny was a fan. I mean, there are some comedians who don't like other comedians, or and there are some people who don't like to admit they have writers and things, but Johnny was a fan. If you came on the show, like Katie Lang came on the show, he loved, and Katie was not the typical person that Johnny would cotton to, because, you know, he was an older guy by then, and she was kind of this uh, kind of strange-looking woman and did, you know, was very eccentric in, a, in, in the way she presented herself. But, you know, he heard that voice and like Jerry, like, uh, you know, and if you got called to that, uh, you know, because basically you went out, you did your spot and you were gone. But if you got called to the desk to do another bit, Johnny really, really liked you. And, you know, he, I can remember KD came back on because she was only in L.A. For, for a week or something. She came back on a couple of days later and did another couple of songs. I mean, and Jerry was the same way. And there would be every once in a while a comedian would get that golden moment where, you know, you get uh, when you went to commercial, they'd say he, he wants you to come uh, talk to him. And then you were made from there. I want to ask you about that golden moment with so much, as you mentioned, Johnny already knew the answers before the questions were asked. Is it true that he would just make the call on the moment to give you that golden wave over to the desk? Yeah, if it was, if it was the, uh, I can remember we were, because he was such a powerful guy. I remember we were, I was backstage one day and there was this comedian on, he was doing this spot and he was, a, he was doing it with Johnny and he had two older managers backstage and the guy who booked all the comedians uh, came by and he, he passed the two guys and he said, it's cute. 
And one one of the managers turned to the other and said, that is a very important cute. A very important cute. Because <laughs> it made you. You know, if, if he yeah. Johnny liked you and you... Because I, I, I'm assuming that your, your club gate uh, figure for doing a weekend somewhere... Uh, probably trebled, quadrupled, and you got booked all over the country because people watch the show, and then you, then you're, then you're in uh, Florida, you're in uh, Iowa, and it's as seen on the Tonight Show, blank, you know, and you, you were a made man. Well, I want to give a shout out to a past guest of this program, the great John Biner, who, as you know, did six years of Bizarre right here from Scarborough's where he taped it, but he w- went on Johnny Carson more than three dozen times and it was obvious when as you say when johnny liked you yeah you'd keep coming back uh one of the very early things we did was we wrote one sketch i think for uh bizarre didn't get credit because I, the, the producer of the show, the show was a little sketchy so I, I remember selling this sketch and getting money but it was it was basically you never got your name on it and it wasn't a union thing or anything uh but uh yeah but john uh, he did this Thing. He told this story on the show and just slayed Johnny. was about, he was in a bar because he was a very small guy. And apparently he was in the army and he got into a bar fight with somebody who was like 6'4". And he said at the end of the fight, the guy had just beaten the living tar out of him. And he literally picked John up uh, over his head and was about to throw him through a window. And just before he let him go, John, John Biner yelled, and don't come back. And apparently the, the big guy just laughed so hard he dropped him. And... I could still remember today, and you know, I heard this probably 35, 40 years ago, so it, it was a great line. But yeah, the, those kind of things, if you hit that thing with Johnny, that sweet spot, you were a made comedian. You've been great with your time, Daryl. As we close up, I do have to ask you the obvious question. Anyone who's being paying attention will want to know, are you still friends and colleagues with Andrew Nichols, your longtime writing partner? Oh, yeah. No. Andrew and I have been writing partners for, oh God, how long would it be now? Uh, 50 odd years. And uh, he uh, actually uh, writes a lot of plays and stories now. And uh, he just won a competition at a college down in Frostburg, Maryland. And uh, the first prize was they would put his play on and uh, because they had a big festival weekend. I'm a very dull guy and I don't do anything. I just sit at home and I write and I play with my records. But I decided that I would drive down to Frostburg from Toronto and, and uh, spend the weekend with them. And uh, I'm surprised I made it. I mean, it was, it was, it was hell on earth. The weather was unbelievable. It was torrential rain one day and then fog the next day. And I don't drive very well to begin with. But I, I made it to Frostburg and I have no idea how. And it was a great weekend. Just spend, you know, because... We've been pals since we were 12, so you know, we're like brothers. We, we argued for 30 years uh, on every joke we put in anything. It was just a bitter argument. So, but, you know, every time I see Andrew, you know, we talk all the time, and he's, you know, he sends me his plays, and I bitch about something or other I'm doing. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, every time I'm in L.A., I see him, and every time he's up here, we get together. And, uh, yeah, I know, it's one of those true relationships, you know, basically we're brothers and uh, that's uh, the way we'll always be well like you say when you're once brothers you're always brothers and a super talented guy and I would be nowhere I would be nowhere without Andrew Andrew was the secret to all my success absolutely you clearly were a great team Daryl you describe yourself as semi-retired so as we close up uh, what are you working on is there anything you want to talk about Uh, I'm working on a project a sitcom at the moment that has uh, 
there with another writer, um, an Indian writer, and uh, we're putting it together now. He he is he does a lot of movies in India, and he has uh, some uh, friends in big studios, and it's going to be a, an Indian uh, Canadian co-production. So it's basically we're just talking to the studios now uh, about. Uh, putting it together you know, hopefully it'll go because it's a fun project and I really like this guy and I would certainly hire Andrew to to be on the show with us so I'm hoping we, all things come together and I can work with Andrew again literally on this show uh if if it if the stars align as they say excellent well they always are in the past Daryl are you on social media is there anywhere people should go if they want to follow you and know what you're up to uh you know, uh, there's Facebook, but uh, I have, uh, I was doing a blog uh, that I've been writing about uh, the stories of my life. If they do want to see it, it's called uh, Don't Believe a Word I Say. And it, it's a blog by Bob Segarini, the, the legendary rock and roller. And uh, there I have, I don't know, pages and pages. I, I talk about the George Carlin years. I haven't done the Johnny years yet, but I talk about all the other shows I've done, Thick of the Night and Working for Mickey and and disasters, mostly the disasters, because they're always funnier than the, than the successes you have. So yeah, if they, they want to find out what it was like writing in Canada back before I went to LA, I have all kinds of stories in that. But it, yeah, it's called Don't Believe a Word I Say, Bob Segarini's blog. Uh, and they're my writings, my scribblings are in there, of my memories of days gone by. Fantastic. Well, it was great meeting you. Great hearing all your stories. And I want to wish you uh, continued success going forward. Well, thank you. And thank you for inviting me on this. And I'll go back to my dull life now. <laughs> it was my pleasure. And to the listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast. And on behalf of Daryl Vickers, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. I'm your eager beaver. And I'm Mr. Grizzly. If you love politics or hate politics, then have we the perfect, perfect podcast, podcast for you. The True North Eager Beaver. Incisive political commentary. We keep you up to date and give you the political and media literacy you seek. To help you cut through the bovine fecal matter. Facts first. Sound analysis. Sometimes I growl. Sometimes I sass. We impart civics and build community. And we share some laughs along the way. Being informed and engaged has never been more fabulous. Or sexy. Catch us on, on the Dean Blundell Network or on our YouTube channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Because democracy, democracy is, is something you do. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon.